I'm going to talk from the subject of where is your hope? Where is, where is your hope? Um, you know, this, whenever, when I first started doing uh, international flights, I used to get real excited about when I would see how long the flights are with the idea of if a flight is 15 hours, 13 hours, 15 hours, 16 hours, I would, I would load up my carry-on with all of the stuff that I was thinking, man, in 16 hours of no interruptions, how much stuff can I get done? So I would take books I hadn't finished, books I wanted to start, reports that I needed to read and send out to the teams. I would set a schedule of the sermons I was going to do because I'm hitting this both ways, going in and coming out, and the flights to India are actually 22 hours. And so I'm, I'm, I'm figuring this out going in and out. That's basically being on the plane, if it's India, 44 hours. That's like a work week with no one to bother me, just to, just to work. And um, it, it wasn't long when I found out that that doesn't work that way. <clears throat> it doesn't work that way. This, this, this particular time was rather <clears throat> even more challenging because <clears throat> um, even up until the last minute, and I, and I, I, will, I, I will say this first. Um, every time you go through TSA in the U.S., you ought to kiss them because the, the, what we complain about is an inconvenience, and as a problem, I'm telling you in other countries, this is nothing. Other countries, you go through six and seven checks before you get to your plane. Here, you just go through the one and uh, you get a great appreciation. This particular trip, because of all our meetings and stuff, V and I was actually on nine planes, which was tough. Right up until the very end, even on Sunday morning, I wanted to be here the Sunday morning before we left to meet with the team. It was on the edge of outpour. Even up to the Sunday morning, Planes was, I mean, plans was changing, locations was changing. Uh, I was going back and forth with Candy even on Sunday morning trying to get all this worked out. Things weren't lined out. Norman was sending messages of this changing, this changing. And, and, and every two minutes or so, V hears me in my office just making a noise and grunting and, ah, ah, ah we got to get on the plane in a few hours and none of this is working out. And she came in there, just a little funny moment. She came in there. And she said, you need to calm down. And I looked at her and said, calm down. Woman, do you know we go into a country where you got to walk behind me and you telling me to calm down? And then we looked at each other and just busted up laughing and knew that all was going to be, all was going to be well. But you get on these flights and you know there's smells, um, there's people's habits, that you don't anticipate. Um, there's cultural expressions, some things that we would consider rude. Uh, it's the manner in which people sleep that are right next to you or sometimes on you. Um, and, you know, we're on one time frame because of we're coming from U.S. Other folks try to adapt themselves to their time frame of where they're going. So when we may be up, they're sleeping. When we may be sleeping, they're up. And so you, when somebody wants to go to the bathroom, you know, the inconvenience of uh, getting uh, people out, you got to get up. If you got to wake them up. If they're asleep, step over them, you know, move their stuff. I mean, it just, uh, it, it, it doesn't work out too well. 16 hours of thinking you're going to get work done may, may turn into 60 minutes of peace. <laughs> but 
there's one thing that always stays with me through this, and that's hope. That's hope that I'm going to get to the destination. All of, I may have 15 more hours of stuff I got to deal with on this plane, but my hope is I'm going to get to where I'm going. And what's even more interesting about that, it's a hope that I have, that I have no way of controlling. I'm not flying that plane. I can't fly that plane. I might be able to. I mean, I can do a lot of things. I might be able to, but, but I'm not flying that plane. I have to have hope in this train piloted by Emirates is going where we're going. Some of you might have saw the report where one plane completely went to the wrong direction. They were supposed to be going to Germany, ended up in Scotland. Nobody knows how that happened. But my hope is I'm getting to where I'm going. And my confidence, my hope is in that pilot. It's, it's a trivial matter. But for some folks, it might be some of the same issues. Maybe it's you're at a job and, and uh, you've been promised a, a promotion and there may be some challenges between now and then, a tough employee or a tough boss, a tough, a tough uh, manager and overseer, and your hope is that you're going to get what they promised or you're saving and saving and saving with the hope of getting this car that you want or you're enduring the process of going through schooling with the hope and taking tests and going through struggles with the hope that you're going to be able to be that nurse or whatever that you intend to be. Or maybe it's, it's getting married. You're working through the anxiety and the stress that oftentimes weddings can bring, but you're hoping that you get to that day where you get to see, say, I do. It's a hope. And this is what I've learned about hope. Oftentimes we put a lot of emphasis on faith and it's absolutely right and correct to do and biblical to do. But hope is actually the workhorse of faith. Hope is the workhorse. You, you know, there's, there's a difference between hope and, and optimism. There's worldly optimism means, you know, you, you look at the bright side, you look at the best side, you, 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 want, to, you want to think that it's going to come out good. That's optimism. Sometimes that can lead into fantasy, that can lead into things that may not absolutely end the way that you want it to. But hope is different. Hope is based on truth, it's based on biblical assurance. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says it like this, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Listen to that. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Hope is the workhorse. Hope is what you have to have if you're going to have an objective that faith is leading to. And the scripture tells us that God is the God of hope. That's in Romans 15, 13. And and for us as a people of God, we're not just mere optimists. We're people that's filled with hope because we have a God who's a God of promises. Am I talking to the right church? Now, our character in the Bible that we're alluding to in this passage is Abraham. He's, he's, he's the object here. He's the person that's being talked about. He was born with the name Abram. It didn't start out with Abraham. He was born with the name Abram. But I think out of all Bible characters, we see hope, we see patience, we see faith in Abraham more than we do with anybody else. It was a raw, pure faith. 
There's a passage in Romans 4.18, and I believe this will be on the screen and in the message. It says this, when everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding, not to, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of peoples. God himself said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham. So even in situations that seemed hopeless, and just to catch you up on that, because I, I want to, this first thought I want to share with you is this. God is able to do things in our life that we don't even expect or anticipate. He's able to do things. As a matter of fact, God is able to do things in our life that we don't even envision that we're able to do except it's because of him. And I want you to think about Abram for a moment. Here's, here's a man that lived in the land of the Chaldeans. He lived with his father, lived with his family. Uh, they were not people that served our God. They were people who served idol gods. And the Lord comes to Abram and he says to Abram, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father and your mother, and I want you to go to a place that I tell you to go. It's going to be a land that you've never been to, among people that you've never been, but it's in that place that I'm going to build you and make you a great nation. It's not the same as leaving a a place now like it was then. Now we can leave family. No, we can still probably get to them in a few hours. We can still connect by email. We can still connect by text. We can do video. Uh, We can see each other through FaceTime and video and all of that. Here was a whole different ballgame. When you left, you left. There wasn't no connection. You're talking distance, miles, days, weeks, months to get to each other. You may not know what happened to your family member for a year or two. You left, you left. Abraham, with all of that and all that his family had, he believed God. God told him that I am going to make a great nation out of you. 75 years old, and he tells him, you're going to have a child. It's the child of promise. It's the child that's going to lead to you having a great nation. As a matter of fact, it's the child that leads to being the Messiah. It's the child that leads to being the Messiah who will save the world. He's 75 years old. His name is Abram. He ends up in this place in, uh, in Canaan land. And his name means exalted father. So Abraham shows up at a place. He don't know the people. He doesn't know if he can survive. He really doesn't know anything. He's just believing God. He tells people what his name is. My name is Abram. Oh, Abram means exalted father. How many children do you have? Uh, none. But your name is exalted father. And Lord keeps telling him over and over again, chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis, chapter 17 of Genesis. He says, you are going to be a great nation. As a matter of fact, God God comes along and adds insult to injury. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of multitudes of nations. Think about that. He already, his name was already exalted father. He had no children. And while he still has no children, the Lord said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, father of multitudes of nations. Think, think about that for a moment. That, that would, yeah, that would be like, that would be like uh, my name is Wayne. What does your name mean? My name means ballhead. My name is Wayne. My name means ballhead. Well, Wayne, I'm going to change your name to Wayne Fro. Wayne Fro, because that means you got a whole lot of hair on your head, right? He changed his name to Wayne Fro. Because that means he's got a whole lot of hair 
on his head. So Abraham has to walk around. I almost said Wayne had to walk around with a boy, but Abraham had to walk around. And, and because of the, the tension and the, the nervousness, him and his wife come up with the plan that he should go ahead and have a child with her full-time servant because they need posterity. They need somebody to take care of the, the family afterward. And so the Lord comes to, Abraham comes to the Lord and says, well, I have, well, I have Ishmael. He says, that's not the son of promise. You're going to have a child of promise, you and Sarah. Now he's 99. It's 25, 24 years later, and he still has no child of promise. And God comes to him and Sarah and says, "It's one year, you're going to have a baby. And that baby is going to be the child of promise. Abraham can't believe it. It's 24 years later. He's 99. He can't envision it. He even said, let me just have a blessing through Ishmael. Let me just have a blessing through my servant. The Lord says, no, I made you a promise. I made you a promise and I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to fulfill my promise. He says, Lord, I'm 99. Sarah is barren. Sarah ain't having no children. She can't have no children. I'm 99. Ain't no functioning at the junction nowadays. We just ain't going there. And the Lord, y'all all right? We got adults in here. And interrupted me, baby. And so, and, and so, the Lord says, no, 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 no. You're going to have a child. Whatever you got to do, bro, you got to figure it out because y'all going to have a baby. One year later, 25 years after the promise, here comes Isaac. And Jesus says, when Abraham saw Isaac, he rejoiced because he saw my day. The very fact that Isaac came as the Lord promised gave Abraham all assurance that everything else God said will come to pass. He's a God that's able to do beyond what we can envision. And he went on to have multiple uh, other children and nation after nation. As a matter of fact, the very reason we're sitting here right now worshiping our God is because Abraham believed God and through him, our faith has come. And for many people, they get stuck. They, they, they get stuck in certain places in their life and certain situations in their life because they can't envision what can happen beyond being stuck in this place of turmoil or stuck in this place of despair? And some people wake up day after day and the only hope they may have is just getting to retirement or the only hope they may have is just paying off bills or the only hope that they, they may have is just setting aside something for the grandchildren. And they get stuck in that place where the only thing they can see is what, they're, what they can accomplish. And that becomes a limitation. But we serve a God that's able to, uh, who's, who actually is awakening us that he's able to do more than we envision. None of us in God should ever be stuck with what we can see because we serve a God that's able to do more over and abundance and beyond what you can ever envision. If we just have hope in a God who's able. Am I talking to the right church? I thought about the disciples and you know, in, in uh, chapter 17, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 9, there was a situation there where Jesus was teaching the people. And they had gathered a crowd. 
The scripture says there was at least 5,000 men. And once the teaching was over, it was getting late, it was getting evening, people had to walk back to their various places. The disciples went up to Jesus and says, uh, we just send the folks away. It's, it's been long, they're, they're tired, the day is done, and, and they need to go eat, and we don't have anything to feed them. And, and uh, Jesus says, you feed them. He says, but it's 5,000 men. All we got is, is uh, uh, two fish and five loaves of bread. Jesus says, you feed them. Sit everybody down in companies, I believe it was 50s. Sit everybody down in companies. And he says, you bring me the fish and you bring me the bread. And sure enough, they brought Jesus the fish. They brought Jesus the bread. The scripture says, Jesus took the fish and he took the bread and he lifted it up before our God, who's able to do beyond what you can ask or think. And he blessed it. And he gave it back to the disciples. And he says, now you feed them. And sure enough, the scripture says 5,000 men plus women and children was fed on 12 baskets of food and there was food left over. Why? Because they saw something. This God is able to help us do something beyond what we can envision. Let me tell you something. We as Christians, we got to live like that. If we don't live believing God is able to do more in us because of who he is, then we'll live no different than the world. Day after day, living in fear, living in doubt, living in concern, living in despair. Trouble comes, tough times comes, people get in situations, children get in a mess, marriage get in a mess, finances get in a mess. If all your limitation is what you believe you can do, then you're limiting the almighty God. Our God is able to do beyond what you ask or think. He's able to do what you even envision. And this is a God that approved to you that you should believe him. I'll, 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 I'll read these verses again only to bring out this particular point. The scripture says, this is verse 13. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. And listen, it says, since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God has promised. Now, when people take an oath, They call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. And, and, and it, it's, a, it's a cultural thing there, but I can try to illustrate it for just a moment. But, but in that day and time, someone made someone a promise. And when they made them a promise, they would say, I'm going to do this. Well, the people knew that I'm trusting in a man. I'm trusting in situations. I'm trusting in anything that can happen. How do I know that you're going to be assured? And they would do something that would seal the oath. It may be give them their staff, or it may be give them a signet ring, or it may be here, take these, these amount of animals. That, that way assure you that I'm coming back. Or in some cases, take these servants, and you'll know I'll come back to give it to them. It's, you know, when I was a child, we used to do silly stuff. Like when I tell somebody, man, we're going to go to Ponce's. We're going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to buy some bologna, and we're going to go to the house, and I'm going to fry you up some bologna sandwiches, man. I'm going to fry you up some bologna sound. Oh, Tyrone, you ain't going to do that. No, man, I promise. Come on. I got a little money. Let's go. How you, how do I know you're going to do that? Man, I promise. I promise. If I don't do it, if I step on the crack, I break your mama's back. You know, those kind of, you remember how we used to do those silly kind of things to make somebody believe it. That's the same kind of thing culturally. 
But here's what God said to Abraham. He said, listen, I've already given you a promise. And, and I get it. In your culture, I understand you need somebody greater than me, somebody greater to make the oath. But Abraham, the Lord tells Abraham, ain't nobody greater than me. <laughs> ain't nobody greater than me. I am the great and awesome God. So I'll make you a promise. And Abraham, I give you my oath. I ain't never lied, never will lie, cannot lie. You can trust what I'm going to do. Because there is no greater person than to give you a word than the almighty God. I love the story of Gideon. It's in chapter 6. And... The story, the Midianites had been coming into the nation of Israel and just ravaging them. I mean, just taking them over. To the point that the people, when you read Judges 6, and I know many of you are going through the Bible, you're reading 12 minutes a day, so you might, depends on what you're reading chronologically. If you're reading chronologically, you're already in Judges, so you should be hitting this. And, and I know, I've been talking to a lot of folks, it's a whole lot of killing in the Old Testament. I know one of these days I'll have to deal with it. I know some of that stuff is kind of... Uh, kind of rough, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Today's a good day. I'll tell you a good story. So here's, 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 here's Gideon. The folks are, have pressured the Israelites. The Midians keep coming in by the hundreds of thousands, raiding, taking their animals, taking their land, taking their crops. The people are starting to live in caves. They're starting to live in the mountains. They're starting to live in places where the Midianites can't be. They're hiding their food. They're hiding their wheat. They're even hiding their animals. Because the Midianites, when they keep coming in, they keep crushing them. Here we find Gideon in Judges chapter 6. He's in the wine press, which is where you would take care of the figs and, uh, sorry, the grapes. Uh, but they've already raided that. And so they're not looking for that. But there, there is Gideon in the wine press threshing the wheat because it's a hiding place. And the Lord shows up and he says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And, and, and Gideon responds to the Lord. He says, how can I be a mighty man of valor? And he says, as a matter of fact, how can you be a God that would say that you take care of us and we're getting raided on every side? We're getting all of our stuff taken. We're, we're getting all of our animals taken. Here I am even now hiding in a cave trying to find, trying to thresh this wheat so my, food, my family would have food. And you say you're a great God. You say that you're a God that'll take care of us. He says, get in, you're a mighty man of valor. And I'm going to use you to deliver the nation from the Midianites. He told them why they were going through that discipline. I won't go on all that. But he says, I'm going to use you to, to deliver the people from the Midianites. He says, how can you use me? Think about this. Here he is, small thinking. Gideon went on to say, man, I'm the least man of my clan. And my clan is the least of the nation of Israel. This is the best we can do. This is all I can do. I'm doing the best I can so that my family survives. He says, no, Gideon, I'm going to make you a mighty, a mighty man. And, and Gideon said, I need you to give, I need a sign. I need a test. And he done something. I won't go into that part. And the Lord showed him that it was him. And then he said, this is what I need you to do. I need you to prepare an army. Now, let me tell you something that Gideon did. And I wasn't going to go into this, but it's a good point. As soon as Gideon re realized it really was the Lord. The first thing Gideon did was went to all the false God places that they had in the city. Even his, his dad had set something up and he tore all of those down. Immediately he realized, if I'm really going to trust in the almighty God and catch this, I need to get rid of anything else that allows me to trust in anything else. 
When you know you can trust the almighty God, you need to get rid of everything else that may be distracting you from trusting in him and him alone. Am I talking to the right church? And so Gideon goes out and he gets gets an army together. And before he goes out to battle, he says, Lord, I just need to know one more time. You said that they're going to be delivered in my hands. I just need to know one more time. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a fleece of wool. And he said, Lord, if this is you, when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece of wool to be wet and the land dry because only God can do that. Sure enough, he wakes up the next morning and he goes and he grabs the fleece of wool and he wrings it out and water comes out of the fleece of wool and all the land around it is dry. He said, Lord, don't be angry with me, but can we do this one more time? Can we do this one more time? He says, Lord, in the morning, if I wake up and the ground is wet and the wool is dry, because only you can do that, then I know it's you. Sure enough, he wakes up the next morning and he goes out there and he grabs a fleece of wool and it's completely dry. But all the ground is wet. And the Lord is letting know, I'm going to prove to you that you can believe me. But he says, I got to put you to the test. So here is the Midianites, hundreds of thousands of them. The most that, that uh, the nation of Israel could muster up was 32,000 men. And, and he starts out the battle with 32,000. And listen, it's really not a big deal for the nation of Israel to go out with less people. This is a side note, maybe a little bit political, but Iran and everybody else better take notice. Israel don't lose battles, just so you know. Just so you know. So he goes out with the 32,000. Not concerned that this may not be enough to go up against 100,000. But he starts out with the 32,000. The Lord says, you know what, Gideon, you got too many. What do you mean I got too many? It's hundreds of thousands of those. I only got 32,000. He said, no, no, it's, it's too many. So Gideon talks to the, to the 32,000 army and said, listen, if any of y'all are too afraid to go, uh, I get it. The Lord said, I got too many. He's promising us that we're going to win. If any of y'all want to go back home, if you're afraid, if, if you just, if you ain't man enough, I don't know, he could have said all that, uh, then you can just go ahead back home. 22,000 of them turn and go back home. 22,000, boy, I'd have been firing folks left and right. 22,000 of them go back home. So he's left with 10,000. said, okay, then that means we're going to win with 10,000. And the Lord said, no, you still got too many. Too many? I'm down to 10,000 versus over 100,000. He says, I need you. You got too many. You need to go to the water. Take them to a water, to the water. And he says, this is what I want you to look at. Anybody that gets down and puts their mouth to the water and drinks it, they got to go. The only ones I want you to take is the ones that lap the water up and lick it like a dog. The ones who lap it up and lick it like a dog. The rest of them, they got to go. He watches 10,000 men go to the water and only 300 pull the water up and laps the water. So Gideon is left with 300 men. And God says, watch this. (laughs) And I love when I hear God say, watch this. So sure enough, he takes 300 men and whipped the Midianites behind. Why? Because God said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to prove to you why you can always believe me. That's the God that we serve. Certainly Gideon done way more than he envisioned that he would be able to do. But because we got a God who gives us the hope that we can do more than than we ask or think. And why is that? Because God can't lie. 
He cannot lie. There's several verses in the Bible that talks about that. I think I only got one that's going to be on the notes, and that's Hebrews 6.18. It says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. If God lied, if he lied at all, it would deny the very nature of God, that he is a God of truth. He's a God that can be trusted. He's a God that always proves himself to be the faithful character that he is. And if we ever deny what God can do, then the scripture tells us in 1 John, we're actually calling God a liar. But we got to know this. He is a God that can give, that can set a course for your life that is so much better than what you can ever envision. He can set a course for your life actually that you cannot envision except you trust him. And he will always prove to you why you can believe him. And he's a God that cannot lie. And oftentimes when I talk to people and I, and I ask them where their hope is. And, and, you know, we could get past the trivial things. I, I talked about my hope was just, you know, getting from L.A. To, to Dubai, just getting to my destination. And there's other things that I talked about that's not as trivial as vacations and cars and homes and weddings and all of that. That means something. But, but, but do you know there's people who just want to have a hope just to get past some grief? and get past some sorrow. There's some folks who have a hope to get past this day before they take themselves out. There's some people who have a, have a hope that, that they can get past addictions and anxiety and fear and hope that they can get their children through a season of life or even get through their, through their own marriage. Uh, a lady named um, uh, Alice, I believe her name was, I don't know her personally, um, but know where she goes to church and heard her story of where she was uh, on a plane. She had just taught uh, at, in Burbank, I think, and was flying back to Sacramento. And it was a women's conference. She was there for three days and was one of the teachers. And so she was sitting on the plane. She said she had actually pulled notes out from the other teachers and she was going to review them. 30-year-old man was sitting next to her and said to her, what does she do? And she says, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. She says, what do you teach? He said, what do you teach? He says, I, I teach hope. I teach that people in Jesus Christ can have hope, that they can have hope in this life. Now, that wasn't her profession. Her profession was actually a, a teacher in a, in a university. But, but just a God moment, or she was sensing a God moment, and she said, I teach hope. I teach that people in Christ can have hope. The man responded to her, and he said, lady, I need hope. My wife just left me. My mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I just, I'm just leaving my attorney from filing bankruptcy for my business. I need hope. She says, I only tell you this story because from that moment on, and it's a short flight from Burbank to, to Sacramento, from that moment on, I had an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ to someone who needed to hear it. But he says, she said, but like, can we tell you the greater joy? The greater joy, not only was somebody hearing it, but that I, who know Jesus Christ, can actually tell somebody that there is a hope. And we know that there is a hope, but how, how do we get there? How do we get to that hope? Well, the, the scripture is clear, and it won't take me long to, to wrap this up, but notice what the scripture says here in verse number 18. It says, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. Listen to what the writer is saying about if we want to have hope, what do we got to do? We got to flee to refuge. You can't stay in life where you are. 
You cannot work your way out of doubt. You cannot work your way out of fear. You cannot work your way out of addictions or despondency or insecurities or false hopes or lostness. You can't work your way out of that. You got to flee to the refuge where we do have hope. And that refuge is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you stay right where you are, you're going to remain right where you are, and you're going to die right where you are. We got to flee from this place to that place, trusting in the almighty God. He is our only refuge, and it's a fleeing. Listen to me. Everything about this world will hold you down. Everything about people around you who don't see life the same way you do or the way you're becoming to see life, they will hold you back. People will give you all kind of self-help stuff. You can watch TV from morning to night and see guru and self-help people and Oprah and doctor whoever and whoever and whoever. You can watch that mess all day long and still lay your head down at night in fear and anxiety because the only refuge we got is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's proven strong. He's the only one that proves faithful. Listen to what the scripture says here. This is Psalm 62, six and seven. It says, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory, listen, depend on God. I think I need to go back and read that again. I might have read that too fast for some of you. He alone is my rock, listen, and my salvation, my stronghold. Check this out. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God. My strong rock, my refuge is in God. I'm telling you, that's the only way that we know that we're standing on a solid rock, that we're standing on sure ground is because we've given ourselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the old hymn, Rock of Ages, clap for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's the old uh, hymn that calls us and tells us, hide in the Lord. That's where we go. That's our refuge. It's in Jesus. But it didn't stop there. It said that, that, that he's our great high priest. Now, now I love this, and, and, and there's, there's so much more of Hebrews I got to go through. We'll probably finish it before Jesus comes, maybe. But we'll, we'll get to some more of it about the great high priest. But in case you, you're not quite sure what that really means, back in the Old Testament, whenever the people sinned, and whenever the nation was in trouble, the high priest was the one that was the only one that can go in before the Lord and lift up a prayer and lift up a sacrifice. Anybody else was considered not holy enough, not righteous enough, hadn't done the things that was necessary, wasn't part of the right family, wasn't part of Aaron's family, wasn't a called family that could be called the high priest. We had to, we had to take our sacrifices and give them to other priests who would allow, who would take them to the high priest and he had to be the one that would take our needs before the Lord. We had to trust that he was going to go in there and represent us. Now let me tell you, there's a whole lot of things that can go wrong with that system and God knew it. So this is what the Lord did. He gave, he brought forth his very own son who you know and I know as Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. I'm going to take all the problems. I'm going to take all the shame. I'm going to take all the, the stuff that goes on in people's life and all their sin. And I'm going to put them on my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to take all of that. Whatever you think is the worst thing in life, 
I'm telling you, Jesus took it. Whatever sin you think I can't tell nobody about, Jesus took it. Whatever problem going on in your head and in your heart, the things that go on in your private life, I'm here to tell you, Jesus took it. He took all that. He took it to the cross. He laid there bare in shame, allowing himself to be crucified for my salvation. And I love that. And then you know the rest of the story. Jesus was put in the tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, that's a great story. But I'm glad it really doesn't end there. Because even though Jesus went in for my sins, do you know there's still days that I sin? Oh, I'm glad y'all didn't know that I sinned. Okay, I, I don't want to, but it happens. And, and, and do you know, even though I have a great life, do you know I still have troubles? Even though I love what God is doing in your life and my life, do you know there's times when I have some worry and some anxiety and some situations that go on at times if I allow it, it can overwhelm me. I'm so glad that Jesus just raising from the dead wasn't the end of the story because the scripture says that he is a high priest that is still behind the veil. He's still in the presence of the Almighty God. In other words, whatever else is going on now, though he died for it all, he's still there interceding for it. He's making sure that my sins are forgiven. He's making sure that I overcome anxiety. He's making sure that I get past fear. He's making sure that I get past doubt. And I'm here to tell you, he didn't just stop there. As a matter of fact, he opened up the curtain and he said, Dennis, come on in. Doug, come on in. Lauren, come on in. Tisha, come on in. Robert, come on in. He said, come right on in here with me. Right in the throne room. Right in the presence of the almighty God. Right there where the spirit of God is working. I got one more thing. You can keep standing. I'm almost done. One more thing. The scripture says this. That we got an anchor that holds us. I don't want you to miss this. Let, Let me tell you something. Everybody here knows I love my wife and love my children. Love them. Love you as a church. But one thing I've learned. There are times and seasons in my life where grabbing my wife don't work. Grabbing my children don't work. Walking up and sitting down in my office don't work. There's times when I got to know I got an anchor. Storms of life is rocking. I got to have an anchor. Things are coming at me. I got to have an anchor. Situations are bombarding me that can throw me off. I got to have an anchor. And I'm telling you, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the anchor of my soul. It's the anchor of my soul. But listen, you ain't got to leave your family out. You ain't got to leave them out. You can take that family. Hold on to this cross. 